Welcome back to Vox Podcast, the weekly pseudo-acting roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, and I am once again here with Katya and Hannah, and I'm not going to say how's it going, guys. <laughs> um, it's been a week. Uh, this is going to be a weird show. Yeah. yeah, we're recording this on, let's see, what, January 8th, if I have my timeline. No, correct. January 9th. January 9th. Uh, it's been a week, guys. I don't even know what day it is anymore. And I'm actually staring at a calendar right now, and I don't know what the day is. <laughs> it's the 9th. <laughs> I have my it's the up. 9th, guys. We are, yep, it's been a lot. Saturday. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I, well, hold on. I invited Steph to... to yeah, thanks for letting me sit in on this. I was very curious she, about the discussion, so uh, I kind of invited myself. We should let people... Okay. You are always welcome, Steph. Um, so, Mav, what the hell has happened this week? Well, okay, so here's a weird thing. Now, most of our shows, we try to have, you know, a topic, and we're mostly evergreen. Most of our episodes are, you know, you listen to them whenever you listen to them. They're always about some pop culture thing. Maybe it's a movie that just came out, but, you know, you can... You can watch it whenever you can pick up it whenever. But then we had a lot of discussions this week about, you know, did we want to cover the last week in American politics? Because this is as much culture as you're going to get. And it's just been on our minds. And we, I mean, today's show today for the listener, if, if you were listening to the show when it came out is Monday, this is this was scheduled to be our box office draft show, which we've already recorded. But then we were like, oh, God. Yeah, it just it just felt a little like um, we didn't want to talk about Black Widow and Eternals and, mm-hmm. and, and stuff. Yeah, like yeah at a moment where like the entire country is in turmoil. And like, while we're not a serious news show, it just felt not especially because it's an episode we recorded before the events of this week. It just didn't you know, I think it just didn't feel right to us. Right. And there's a lot going on that intersects with. Pop culture, American cultural history, right? Technology, all of the things. Like every yeah. shoe in culture has kind of feels like it's dropped this week. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we always say that culture and politics are intertwined and you can't separate them. Yeah, so that so. that's gonna be the show. I just want to put out the last show that actually has come out as we record this, and not the last one we recorded, but the last one the listeners have heard. There's a point on it where Katya, you go, okay, I don't know what's happening in American politics right now because we recorded it three weeks earlier, but call your congressman. Just, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> you, you, you say at some point, like something crazy is going on. You should probably be calling your congressman now. I was listening back to that and I'm like, okay, it's Katya's fault. She, she cursed the future, you I just, guess. Bit, like, you know, but I feel like for reasons we're about to talk about in the sort of more immediate term, but I feel like, I mean, first of all, you should always be calling your Congress representatives. Uh, there's almost always something, even on a minor scale. You could be like, hey, 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 do this better. I feel like in the last four years, a lot of people have, have flexed that skill who maybe haven't flexed before. So, yay. I feel like in the last week, yeah, yeah. that has felt even more. Okay. So, so for posterity, um, because this is, you know, again, we, we are recording in the midst of history unraveling. And I, I should have said unfolding, but no, I'm going to stick with unraveling. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're recording in the midst of all of this. We had to talk about whether we wanted to even do this show or not, because we're like, well, we're just going to be talking about our feelings about what's happening. And we're recording on a Saturday. The show comes out on a Monday. I'm not yeah. sure the country will be here by then. I'm not sure what's going to be. So like, how outdated could we be? This is going to be weird, but we should like let people know where we are 
in history as we record at this so in four years from now people can, can listen <laughs> yeah. to and go. so so future future cultural researchers of the world you're welcome right so yeah actually back 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 to last saturday uh-huh. we'll do a recap timeline of at least like big picture things yeah everybody get out your whiteboard <laughs> and with a caveat that to borrow from the npr politics podcast Things will certainly have changed by the time you hear this. So last Saturday, Trump had an hour-long phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State asking, quote, I just want to find 11,780 votes. So on Sunday, the Washington Post obtained the recording of that conversation, and we found out that Trump was pressuring and threatening and harassing the Georgia Secretary of State. So that, that was just that was just like Saturday to Sunday. So six days ago, our time, like as we record, uh, Trump committed yet another impeachable offense. Is what you're saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's effectively trying to radically alter election right. results. So that should be enough to do not only this show on that. That should be an event that drives all of media for the next week. That was six days ago. However, that has largely, I won't say disappeared from the news, but is a minor. Like, yes. Okay. Big picture is Trump is trying to steal the election. Right. Well, <laughs> six days ago. Yes. Yes. So Hannah, please continue. <laughs> you know, in the midst of all of this, the pandemic is raging. Uh, people are preparing to like go back to school, either virtually or in person. Vaccine distribution is not going well in many places. And this week is also this past week um, for the listener is also the first time we had 4,000 deaths in one day in the U.S. So I guess Tuesday. Tuesday was like, what uh, was a big day because we had the Georgia Senate runoff and the Democrats squeaked out wins in both of those. Yay. So the Democrats took control of the Senate, which should have driven the entire news cycle for the week and been the biggest story in the world in the United States of America. Can we um when you talk about Stacey Abrams and the other Georgia organizers who pulled that off for a second, because that's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> She's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and again, that should have been the big story. Yeah. One more little asterisk. Uh, if you would like to see more change like this, uh, you should find places in your state that are organizing and you should invest in your communities, not just during presidential elections, but every election, because it turns out local races really matter and the administration matters. Anyway, so that was Tuesday. I'm crazy. So I, I got to watch the returns because this is the Super Bowl. To go. So I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, and just watching numbers tick in. And then I finally go to bed around four or five in the morning on Wednesday, uh, content that um, that uh, the world is OK. Yeah, the, you know, the, <laughs> the Georgia on yeah, track just, to somewhere. Yeah, not, yeah. I, I mean, I'm. Uh, I'm not a 50-50 margin with a one tiebreaker. Some senators of whom I don't, even though they might be Democrats, I don't necessarily agree with on a lot of things. But the world was markedly better when Wednesday morning from about 4 a.m. till about noon. Yeah. So around 1 o'clock, um, I believe they started at 1. They started the official counting of the vote, 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Um, and, and when we say they, counting of the vote, we're specifically yeah. referring to a particular, his, like, actual mostly symbolic ceremony of counting the electoral college votes. Right. Which typically takes, um, depending on how it goes, somewhere between half an hour and 45 minutes. It's often like a very minor news event. It's like, it's it's televised because it's required to be public. 
Right. It's televised generally on C-SPAN. It's right. not usually covered on, on major news network. Right. So before the county electoral vote, Donald Trump, who is somehow the actual president of the United States, held a rally. Basically, he's been pressuring Mike Pence, who is the vice president of the United States of America, to reject the electoral college vote. Something Mike Pence has repeatedly told Donald Trump, I can't, I cannot do. Not that he won't do. He can't. He can't in the same way that he can't flap his arms and fly. It's just not an ability he has. It's not something, there's no law, there's no provision, there's no, there's no reason the, the vice president has that ability. And because of the way the Constitution's written and the ceremonial nature of the county electoral college vote, it is literally, the, it is the job of the vice president to essentially open the envelope and then hand them over to the Senate. It's just, there's a weird process. They read the envelope and then they count the vote. He doesn't make decisions. He's just there to like literally. He's, he's presiding. Right. It's the like, kind of job you give a two year old at, um, at, at Thanksgiving dinner. You're well, like, because hey. it's, it's yeah. a ceremonial signaling of basically yes. like the, the essentially the conclusion of the election, even right. though like at this point, by the time this count is taking place, essentially it is a foregone conclusion. This right. is not like it is formally ratifying in this, that, that in yes. this case, Biden won. Mm-hmm. But like it's not really up for debate by the time this happens, except right. for you, there are objections, as we're all aware of in the news. I'm not going to go super into depth of that process. Mm-hmm. Like, but basically, like everyone knows that coming out of that yeah. that process, objections notwithstanding, like Biden's Biden is president. Like this is a formality, and it's a large. I mean, it's a symbolic thing. It's like this is a tradition mm-hmm. going back to like the founding of the country. It's how we do things. Archaic wooden boxes and paper ballots and all. Right. But Trump's theory was, well, if he never does it, then I stay president forever. That was like kind of where he was going with it. And Pence basically kept explaining to him, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. So Trump held a rally at 1 p.m. on Wednesday. We're going to we're going to link a timeline in the show now. But he holds a rally essentially saying that, you know, if Mike Pence does the right thing, we we because he does this in the royal yeah. terms or that are going to win this election and it's people cheer. And if not, we are going to march on on the Capitol. I'll be there with you. And then there's a lot of very vitriolic rhetoric from uh, Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump Jr., who I... Yeah, using war term- terminology. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm trying to find the actual transcript. Yeah, he calls... Well, at one the- point, he says, like, you'll never take our country back. Really, yeah. you will never take back our country with weakness. And he's basically Giuliani urging... Says, yeah. And urging- trial by combat. Right, yeah. That's yeah. That's he's it. urging the mob, like, what is essentially a mob at this point, mm-hmm. to march yes. from where the address is taken, which is called the Ellipse, which is in front of the White House, mm-hmm. to the U.S. Capitol... Um, to essentially is, like well, be outside like while they're counting. How far is that stuff? You lived in DC. It's a mile, mile and a half. Oh, hey, decent distance. I've never done that because it's not that. Oh, maybe I have. Yeah, but it's it's a little, something like that. I don't know. But it's easily walkable. I mean, it's it's yeah. It's, it's like a little bit of walk, like I believe it's like a, about a mile or a little bit over that. Like it's 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 walkable. Yes. Yeah. So he's essentially encouraging them to to march to the Capitol to basically be be there to exert pressure while they are ratifying this electoral vote. And part of that is like a this pressure on, on Pence, and then b encouraging more representatives to object to the electoral college votes themselves. So the way electoral college objections work, and the mainstream media is kind of making this out like they're very like they're very rare. They're mm-hmm. not. 
Um, it actually happens quite frequently, and I'm going to borrow the term on both sides. You know, um, <laughs> the, the, the Democrats actually object to them a lot as well. In the House, senators are usually much more resolent. And the, the reason is because since congressmen, since the lower house, uh, House of Representatives, um, has, they represent far fewer people than the senators do. Mm-hmm. You might represent a district that is very, very strongly Democrat or very, very strongly Republican. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times there are members of the House of Representatives that will object to the count. Mm-hmm. Um, the presiding officer, the vice president, says, is the objection signed by a senator? And the House, and, and the house guy will go, no. And then the vice president gets to say, all right, then it doesn't count. Moving on. This is the right. job it's of the vice president. It's to be sponsored by a member in each in each house in each chamber excuse me and this happened, to move forward and this happened four years ago as well joe mm-hmm. biden presiding over the count um there were several objections to various states by democratic members of the house and joe was not having it even though he would have preferred that hillary clinton won the election he's like nope doesn't count and at one point he's he even says stop it it's over famously right. while he was there um because again, this is like even the objections themselves. Like this is this is a largely ceremonial. symbolic ceremony. Yeah. Even the objections themselves are largely like kind of yes. the electoral version of virtue signaling to their to their base. It's like a, a thing that they can do to say like, "Oh, look, I stood up for your, you know, I did a symbolic, not actually meaningful thing to stand up for X, Y, Z that they can take home." Mm-hmm. So very early in the count, yep. Arizona has an objection from both a House member and a Senate member. So like roughly fifteen minutes into the process, actually. Yes. So that forces mandatory debate of two hours in each house debate on the issue. So the House and the Senate split back up. They walk back to their own chambers and they get to debate for two hours whether or not to uphold this objection. They're not going to because there just was not the stomach for it. They have no grounds for it. But they're they were just going to force it. Yeah. Remind me, you looked at, probably looked at this more recently. I believe it's a simple majority in each chamber. It is a simple, mm-hmm. it is a simple yeah. majority in each chamber in order to in order, in order to do mm-hmm. it. So the votes were not there in either chamber because even though the Republicans control the Senate, there were only at this point there are thirteen Republican senators who are for this. So essentially, it's thirteen to eighty-seven in right. the in, in the Senate against doing this, and they know this ahead of time. And in the or actually it was thirteen to eighty-six because there was one person missing, but thirteen. 86 in the Senate, and it's 140 to 300 something in the House, you know, or, uh, to, um, against this. So this is going nowhere, and everyone knows. And this was actually expected. Like, this had been reported in the news, like, you know, every like, mm-hmm. people who follow politics were aware, like, okay, here are the people who are probably likely to object. Here are the states that are going to be objected to, like, it's Arizona, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Like, that part was expected. Right. So we knew that a process that was supposed to take 45 minutes because of the six right. objections was going to take about 13 hours. We knew mm-hmm. that. And, and, and that's the only reason it was being televised on networks that were not that were not C-SPAN, because they're like, oh, God, we're going to watch this farce. But I guess that's what we're doing today. To rewind a little bit to Monday and Tuesday, like there were earlier news reports from multiple outlets basically talking about like, hey, there is risk of things going sideways because they're monitoring far right wing forums, Mm -hmm. social media outlets, whatever secret, you know, smoke signal Mm -hmm. shaman abilities to predict the future that journalists, I assume, have Mm -hmm. uh, to basically be like, hey, 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 this might be weird. So I'm sure also a lot of, you know, a lot of the impetus to to cover this more than regular is like, this is not a usual election. This is not a usual time in American history, which 
turned out to be prescient because while basically objections are being processed and the Congress has moved into debate, the mob of Trump supporters is moving from the ellipse to the Capitol building, which is getting increasingly riotous, volatile. Mm-hmm. Let's go with like that's yes. kind of under under underselling it. Mm-hmm. And so basically around so basically the Trump speech starts at a little bit after 1 p.m. By a little bit after 2 p.m., the Trump supporters have not only reached the Capitol building, they have breached the, the initial steps on the east side of the Capitol building. And roughly 15 minutes later, you have the first rioters that have broken inside the actual building, which is mm-hmm. something that has not happened since the war of like 1812. So this yeah. is not unprecedented, but basically has not happened in modern American history is a big deal. And it goes on all fucking day. It, it, like, it just, it just, like, they kept calling in the National Guard. Um, the National Guard for D.C. takes approval from the Commander-in-Chief of the DOD, who is currently Donald Trump, so that didn't happen for a while. He claims he sent them right away. That's clearly not yeah, true. Yeah, some states were actually calling them, saying, do you want our National Guard to come yeah. in? Yeah, well, they did. Maryland, Maryland, and Maryland and Virginia eventually just sent their National Guard. They're like, no, 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 you guys need help. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then finally, D.C. sent their National Guard. But anyway, it gets bloody and dangerous. Congress is forced to abandon chambers and shelter in place. And the United States Capitol is suddenly under siege by mm-hmm. an angry mob, which is, you know, not a good thing. This is how civil wars start. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, we won't go into like super point by point detail about the responses. Suffice to say, we'll, we'll probably refer back to it um, throughout this episode, but suffice to say, Trump basically issues several kind of like, um, <laughs> yeah, that's the nice way to put it. Uh, I, I was going to go with more swear words, but um, <laughs> lukewarm. We'll go with that. Uh, attempts to calm the mob. And I put calm in, in heavy air quotes because there's also points like mean, he refers to he refers to the rioters as special, you know, as special people. You're he special people. We love you. Yes. Right. Like, you. He and he, the only points where he really condemns like the actions yeah. are when it seems like he's being putting put under heavy pressure. Mm-hmm. And he usually condemns them by comparing them to, you know, you don't want to be like those people. You know, they, there's a there's a few of those. Yeah, well, yeah, it was still used in, in, inciting rhetoric, yeah, even in his, like, messages to them saying, oh, we, you know, we understand basically what I how I read it is like, we understand that this election is being stolen from you, my people. But try yeah. to be nice. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it was very reminiscent of like the language we heard around Charlottesville of sort of like, oh, there are fine people on both sides kind of garbage. Yes. Um, it seemed like he tried to incite them further. Yeah, absolutely. His- um, so that goes on for the better part of a day. And then eventually late at night. So how did they so it was the tear gas that actually helped to disperse people and clear out the Capitol and building? Time. time. I mean, it's also just like. There, there were. From what I can tell, it's like there's a lot of techniques deployed simultaneously, like moving barricades. Because I mean, you see this pretty common technique of like dispersing protests, and this is true of like most police forces, particularly. Well, okay, when they're not being problematic, see our police brutality episode, and I'll leave right. it at that for now. Tear gas, mace, also just like simply moving people like one, one of the things we saw deployed which i believe they also used at black lives matter protests both at the capitol and, and elsewhere is basically using like metal barricades 
to just mm-hmm. like slowly push people. Mm-hmm. And DC also, um, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what time it was declared. It was pretty early on, I believe, but they declared a curfew, I believe starting at 6 PM. Mm-hmm. And that's Sorry. when you, you really start seeing, I think the most dispersal of people after that curfew was declared. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, while all this is happening, Congress is sheltering in place and the rioters, insurgents, whatever you want to call them, you know, not not protesters. At this point, we've kind of moved beyond mm-hmm. into, you know, they have invaded the state of government are live streaming this. They, you know, people are taking photos of themselves defiling the offices of Congress and, you know, sort of blatantly posting them to social media. So they finally get everybody out and around eight or nine, Congress announces that, no, 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 we're, we are doing this today. There are, there's messages from both Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell saying, nope, we're finishing this today. Um, Which I applauded. I, yeah, that was awesome. Both, that was both of them. And yep. they, and they came back late at night. And Chuck Schumer apparently really pushed through, pushed that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm on, I, from several Congress people, I'm mentioning the two of them because they're the two, they're the two chamber leaders. Mm-hmm. But they both, so they came back late at night and um, they rushed through the count. Um, most of the objections from the senators were withdrawn, with the exceptions of the objections from Ted Cruz and, Holly. and Josh Holly. And of course, there are a couple of senators who vote with them. Yes, who vote with yeah. them. But they, but they, but they dropped their actual objection and they're and they just wanted to get the hell they out just of there. wanted to get out so they had to do one more actual two-hour debate over the state of pennsylvania because holly refused to pull his objection but even then the senate refused to debate it so they're like yeah we'll do a two-hour debate and they're like and they walked into the senate chambers and mitch mcconnell said anybody have anything to say nope all right bye <laughs> yeah so we'll, we'll be back in two hours um like because he's like you can't make us talk we're not going to do this. You can't make us talk about it. You mm-hmm. can just make us stop and sit here for two hours. So, right, well, at that point, like when you think about it in just like practical terms, you're asking them to debate something that just materially contributed to a threat against their lives. Like, right. because it's right. like not not saying that like this particular objection or even this particular like you know vote over the electoral college was the thing that incited the mob, but like part of the reason they're pushing through this is not just like a symbolic, like, yay, America. It's also because like, if this doesn't get done, you're, you're basically like inciting the mob to be like, Oh, look, you succeeded in the thing you did. You set mm-hmm. up to do. Right. Right. Therefore, this is going to make you potentially more motivated to do the next thing. And the thing you just did put everyone in those chambers lives yeah. at risk. I mean, four people died. Five. Uh, now? Not clear. There's at least five. We know. Okay, I yeah, the last report I saw was yeah. was four confirmed. Yeah. But regardless, like, even day of, we knew that there was at least one death of a of a right. woman who was storming the Capitol who was shot by Capitol Police. So like even right. at at the point I believe the vote's taking place, they're already aware of at least one fatality. Yes. Yeah. So on a good note, though, I was thinking that it did kind of backfire for them in that not only did they go on with the, the process, but they actually like their protest for it were like diminished yeah. <laughs> and it went more smoothly and more positively. Yeah, it, 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 it ended around like 3.45 a.m. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's awful and weird, but we get yeah. through it and everybody goes home and one would hope that would have been the end of all of this, but it wasn't because now well, we're at Thursday. Well, a lot of things have been happening at once. Um, right. So Trump got originally got suspended from Twitter for 12 hours. And now as of our recording this, he's gone and he tried mm-hmm. to post uh, using the, yeah, yeah, 
Uh, he, he's like tried to post using the POTUS account because he usually, you know, tweets from, well, he used to tweet from at real Donald Trump. And they, Twitter took that down real fast and was like, nope, buddy. He's breached the glorification, their glorification of violence policy. Yes. Uh, which I wasn't able in, in my, you know, my research has things that would be rapidly. I, I'm not sure when that policy was, that specific policy was created. It's, no, it's, it's been there for a while. He, he uh, they, you, you, um, uh, at least since Charlottesville. Right. But I'm saying like, I was about to say that like, that is something that is, that I believe was at the very least made more robust during the Trump presidency oh, as yeah, a direct yeah, yeah. result. Yes. Of his um, the kinds of things that we've been seeing during, during the last four years. Yeah. Um, and it's worth pointing out that part of the reason why Trump has his lifetime ban is because Twitter is very concerned that other similar events are going to be planned across social media, which like, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which, which has so, already been documented on mm-hmm. various both mainstream and fringe social media platforms. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so this is where we're at. Right. And, then, uh, and, let's, and let's skip. You said we're not a news outlet. We skipped a bunch of stuff. You know. Yeah, we skipped a bunch of stuff. Like, he apparently during the during the riots, um, Trump was calling. This is my favorite thing. During the riots, he called down to senators and was trying to get them to, okay, we can use this. This is what I want you to do. And there, and he yeah. called the wrong one. He called Mike Lee, who is a Republican senator. Me and call uh, Tuberville, who's another Republican senator. And Lee, Lee is like Mr. President, and he's like, oh, is this Tuberville? And he's like, no, this is Lee. And he goes, well, can you give Tuberville the phone? So the so he gives him his personal cell phone, and then they're moving him around, and, and Lee's like, "Can I have my phone back?" I, you know, yeah. um, so, he needs to evacuate yeah. lockdowns during an active putting more people's lives. And this conversation is not, "Are you okay?" This conversation is like, yeah. "How can we use this to make me still present?" So speaking of bad and thoughtless things that happened during the lockdown. Ted Cruz sent out a fundraising message. Yeah. Apparently, personally, at least allegedly. No, it's, it, it was a bot. It's cl- I mean, I've oh, okay. I mean, he probably wrote it himself, but it's clearly a bot because of the way it's written under the presumption that he's talking right now. It, 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 it's I, I mean, I, I didn't pull the actual text. Essentially, so he had to go out during his objection speech is what you're saying. Yes, it, essentially, okay, it's it, it, scene. Yeah, essentially, it says. As we speak, I am on the Senate floor, you know, defending democracy by objecting to it's basically him saying that, like, I am speaking against this right now. When they were in lockdown. But he wasn't speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's. LOL. No. Yeah. He didn't do it. Type it out while he was there. He Mm -hmm. clearly had written it earlier. Yeah. Ahead of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so on Thursday, um, speaking of um, just, you know, people being terrible, uh, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley was dropped by Shimon and Suster. Um, and he lost his book deal. And he tweeted, this could not be more Orwellian, which is a direct assault on oh the First Amendment. Uh, and can I just remind everyone about our original First Amendment social media sh- show, which the point is that the First Amendment is about government speech, um, controlling speech. Like, private companies like Twitter can do what they want. And mm-hmm. also, um, yeah, like it's just like, you know, like all the all the responses to that are one. Yeah. Like, and as a 
As a uh, Pennsylvanian, I'm particularly offended that he is talking about trying to suppress speech. Yeah. He's trying right. to suppress our votes. Like our liter- yeah, right. our liter- literally, so for the listeners, Steph and I live in Pennsylvania, and I'm a judge of election for, um, I work for the Elections Bureau in the state of Pennsylvania. So Holly's entire plan literally was to take away our personal votes and to accuse me personally of fraud. Like, mm-hmm. that's what he was doing. Yep. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, we took it a little personal. Well, and I think the media piece, though, I think like is is interesting because it's like this is the first time that I'm aware of that we're seeing like major media outlets because, I mean, social media is different than, for example, news, which was the historical medium of politics, but like still medium like media outlet. Like, I don't think we've ever really seen a media outlet censor a sitting president in at this level, like, this locking thing. them out. Yeah, like, so I kind of. Well, well, I, you know, I agree that Twitter, Twitter, like, first of all, Twitter and Facebook, they are private companies. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of their policies. But like, in this instance, like, I, I think, one, they're put in a very difficult position because it's, <laughs> evidence basically suggests that Trump's use of their plant platforms over the course of his presidency, but specifically in the last, like, several weeks, in the last several days, has materially added to this situation. Mm-hmm. So they are, whether by intention or like omission, and I seems to be by omission, like these platforms and, and the, the, the leaders of these platforms are implicated. Mm-hmm. So I get like booting him. On the other hand, ah, like I don't, I don't know. We're, we're in uncharted territories here. Like what is the consequence of booting a sitting presidency from a media platform in this way? Especially someone for whom like I... I don't want Trump on Twitter because it's like the I don't want his stream of consciousness like to be basically getting in every, like being beamed in everyone's phones, inciting the mob. But on the other hand, since he's no longer had access to social media, we don't really go know what's going on with the president. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at um, as we speak. It'd be like Ted Cruz. Um, my understanding right now is that. Um, uh, on Monday, Congress should be introducing articles of impeachment towards him. Um, who knows what happens Saturday night or Sunday in the world for us? It's the, this entire situation has been so rapidly moving. The reason I follow Trump on Twitter, and I cannot recommend this for other people because people have asked me, why do you read this you know, for the last four years? I followed him the morning of January 20th, 2017. Um, I sat down and was like, all right, he's about to be inaugurated. And I followed him on Twitter because I felt like I need to know what he's thinking at all times for the next four years. I remember saying it to Stephanie while we were watching the inauguration. I, I need to know. And the nice thing about him is he'll tell me. And now he isn't. And uh, Caitlin Collins, is, you know, she's the White House correspondent for CNN. And she said, the, we don't even know how to do our jobs right now because one of the things that they do for other presidents, you kind of always stay in touch with the White House press secretary. They're used to for the last four years. They just constantly all of them follow him on Twitter. And then they just kind of constantly check because that's how they get the first word of how the president is feeling and what he's thinking. And they, you know, they've all gotten really good at reading the tea leaves. And she's like, I've been talking to my colleagues and we're all like, what do we do now? I don't know. Right. You know like he's just, well, it's especially weird. because like his, like the white house as a whole and specifically Trump, like they're often not on the same page as their communication staff. Right. To say the least. So at this point he has been banned for life from Twitter. He has been banned for two weeks from Facebook and Instagram. 
which keeps him off their lines until after he's no longer president. And I believe that they've, they've still, they've said publicly that they were, they're considering a life, right. they're considering yeah. an extended ban. I don't believe right. a lifetime ban has been proper. Yeah, at least two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's got no outlet right now, which I commend in that they're trying, you know, Twitter's theory here is now he can't incite a riot, but I don't know that he needs to, because now we need to talk about like QAnon, like much of what happened on Wednesday is he's got a crazy cult and I and I'm, don't use that word lightly. Mm -hmm. There's a cult of people who follow him yep. because they literally believe him to be a messiah. And again, not being figurative and saying like they believe he's a chosen one who has been who has been placed in the government to take down the deep state which includes republicans and democrats these are people who were looking to kill in their own words they were looking to kill mike Pence on wednesday they were uh, you know they were looking to kill the vice president who works for the president because they believe that trump is sending them secret message messages to i don't think trump wants to kill mike Pence. But I don't, I don't know that like taking away his ability to tweet calms these people because they will just make shit up in their craziness and they'll decide that that's right. You know? Yeah. They like, I, we didn't talk a lot about the imagery of what happened at the Capitol, but supremacist symbols, multiple flags, just walking through the halls. A guy had, um, like ties, um, as if he were yeah, like, zip looking ties. at zip ties. Yes. Thank you. Zip ties. They shrunk up a noose. Mm -hmm. Also, like, which I feel like people who are on any kind of, I mean, anything at this point on the Internet, like probably have also seen. But like the, the other thing that was particularly striking, given the year that we've had and particularly the summer of 2020 was the amount of like Blue Lives Matter flags, which are those like police it's mm -hmm. the black and blue police flags as the rioters are clashing with police and security officials. And like there's fairly high variability, as Mav noted in how various security officials, police, like whoever is there at the Capitol at this point, because I, I, I've lost track of who's who's there when, yeah. um, how they're responding to rioters. I mean, we see things like there's footage of police appearing to be opening gates for rioters. There's also police like collapsing violently and getting mm -hmm. getting physically assaulted by rioters. Uh, and it's just like, I think I think that's kind of like exposed. I think Mav and Hannah, we were talking about like, well, I think this is kind of exposed of what exactly does Blue Lives Matter flag mean anyway. It's like, this is not, at least in this particular moment, I mean, whatever that means to people personally, aside the point, in this particular moment, this is nothing to do with policing. This has to do with something being used as a symbol of white supremacy, of frankly, like anti-American or at least anti-American establishment yeah. like uh, symbolism. Because I think that, I mean, that. I, I, I too find it funny in the way that the internet has. So a lot of people may not be taking it as seriously as I think it should be is the amount of people when they were being interviewed that like say things like this is a revolution or tomorrow we're bringing our muskets as if this is 1776 all over right. again. And, and there, there were a lot of don't tread on me 1776 like mm -hmm. there as well. Um, also I um, know medievalists who study the links between white supremacy and medieval, like misappropriation of like medieval symbols. Right. Um, so, like I, I, I mean, like, and and look at like um, earlier. Well, not this year. It's twenty twenty one. I guess this millennium of hell. Uh, look at uh, when Trump. <laughs> look at like when Trump decided that he hated the um, sixteen nineteen project, mm -hmm. and he decided that we needed to ban critical race theory, and we needed to form the seventeen seventy six commission. Uh, to, you know, not teach people to hate their country. And we should basically, basically, we should teach lies 
rooted in white supremacy about how great America is and ignoring slavery and genocide. Well, it's about teaching this. I mean, I think the thing that I saw in terms of like the symbolism and like the the rhetorical message being crafted what although crafted is maybe well yeah crafted i I would say i mean the amount of people that are involved in far right-wing news outlets i mean i'm sure a lot of it was crafted like it was merchandised there were t-shirts like Mm -hmm. this was not like a fly-by-night like spur of the moment like hey we showed up to the capitol for unrelated reasons and decided to have a riot like this was planned and i would you know and I'm sure at least some of the, the, the symbolism and rhetoric was planned to, to some degree. Although the guy that looks like he's some kind of god of war cosplayer gone oh, wrong confuses yeah. me a little bit. So if anyone has insight on exactly what's going on there, like please enlighten me. He is. Um, yeah, I don't want to give him too much press. He's the QAnon shaman. He is. A, so it's, it's funny because I follow quite a few right wing idiots on Facebook and Twitter because I, <laughs> I need to know. I need to know what they're thinking as well. And, you know, there are, there's this conspiracy theory where it's like, well, see, this guy, he's not really a MAGA guy. You know, this is this is proof that Antifa has infiltrated us and Antifa did this. And I was like, no, his name is Jake Angeli. He calls himself the QAnon shaman. He is a well-known figure inside that movement. He is as MAGA as you get. He is a moron. He's been arrested for being a moron right now. He was taking pictures with Rudy, with Rudy Giuliani a couple weeks ago. He is <laughs> one of the big movers and shakers inside that movement. And I, he's a crazy person. Yeah, I've heard him talk and he sounds like he's schizophrenic. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's crazy. Like talking about being able to sense like frequencies that regular humans can't. This or... is part of the theory behind QAnon. Oh, QAnon, okay. when I say it's a call, Again, I'm not being derisive towards them. They are a cult of crazy people who believe that Donald Trump is the Messiah sent down to infiltrate the deep state and government and save us all with his magical powers. And the deep state is also also Satanists. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, He's he's trying to stop these satanic pedophiles with his magical powers. Again, they fundamentally believe. It's really, that's really scary that so Um, many people believe that. We have allowed some of them, we've allowed some of them to be elected. Congress. Yes. There are people. So that's what that's who he is. So, yeah, that's why he's wearing this thing. He has been and this is not not a joke. He has been this week specifically disavowed by Wiccans and Nordic worshipers because they're like, we don't like he is. We, we do not like that Nazis are appropriating our symbolism. We do not believe this. Black Lives Matter or something like, that. like they're crazy. He is literally a crazy person that we should not be giving any more. But but like we have so, to because he invaded the fucking because- capital. Right, and he was, he was appears to be one of the people leading the charge. But yes. anyway, what I, what I was talking about, sort of the overall symbolism of the event, is I think for me, I was struck by how much this is like the extreme culmination of rhetoric that we've not only seen in the Trump administration, but even prior to that. I was thinking about like some of the stuff that like like in the Sarah like the Sarah Palin era, yeah, and like John McCain, which feels like. 80 years Lifetimes ago. Lifetimes. Yeah. And so quaint well, like, in comparison. Right. But the rhetoric about like the tr- the true America or like the real America, which was often read as a rural urban divide. And that was often mm-hmm. the sense in which it was used. But like the, we've seen since that period an increasing use of like there are quote unquote real Americans and not real Americans. Real Americans usually meaning white, a certain brand of working class. Basically, the people you saw on 
on the Capitol. Like that's so that's, that's pause there though um, about working class because um, right. it's a, that's what I say a certain kind of working class because <laughs> like I, a lot of people I when this first began happening before we really knew what was going on in the Capitol I was texting people and someone responded to me oh this is just a hillbilly riot and I said mm, no. I, I don't. I don't think so. I. I, I mean, um, what they had seen is they had not seen the other stuff yet. To be fair to them, but I was like, I, I, but like, I. I challenge the use of the word hillbilly. I challenge um, rhetoric like from Anderson Cooper, who um, made the rounds on social media for saying they should go back to Olive Garden and Holiday Inn where they came from, as if Holiday Inn is extremely low class. I don't know. Maybe I just can't afford to stay anywhere. Um, <laughs> when you look at like there, there is a. An impulse in this country to say that white supremacists and racist, like white supremacist racists, are like poor, ignorant white people, and that's what makes them so. But if you look at the reports of who was there, yes, what flew in her own private jet, uh, like people who own companies, um, like like Rouse's Grocery Store, one of the co-owners was at least at Trump's speech, uh, entertainers. Um, like like people like a lot of people who claim to be uh cops um like you, you, like the, these were but not I think this is what, I think this is where though we need to be careful between distinguishing what the rhetorical presentation is and what the reality is because I still like I still think that the, the rhetoric of the like two americas is because because a lot of the republicans particularly the far right wing base is built on a rhetoric of, of appealing to a particular version of the predominantly male working class and I will say this, people who identify as working class in a political sense, often when you look at like what the financial definition of working class, what kinds of levels of privilege or precarity are involved in that are often not working class. I'm speaking from personal experience. I know people yeah. who would not identify as like upper middle class or wealthy in terms of like rhetorical presentation, things like that, or even in their own identity wanna, that certainly are. Yeah. And I want to, yeah, this is where, I mean, I want to... Because we're getting into kind of stuff we do on this show normally now, and I want to talk about this a little bit. And you and your stuff, because this is um. So Katya's right. There's um the, in that class studies, and this is very much in like you know in our wheelhouse is is weird in that there's cultural class and there's social class and there's financial class, and right. people don't necessarily distinguish between them. And yet they are very, very different, right? Mm -hmm. What we're really looking at is a, is, a, is, a, is a sort of otherism. The reason in Anderson Cooper will say something like that is not, he's not even trying to be a jerk so much as he's trying to, he's trying to essentially say, these are the bad people. And how can I distinguish the good people from the bad people? Well, they'll do some low class thing like go to Olive Garden and Holiday Inn, which comes from a particular case of place of privilege on Anderson's part. But he's really trying to say it's the bad white people. Which we also yeah. actually saw that similar kind of rhetoric used against Trump in the early days of the of Absolutely. The where and, like, people were going like, oh, he might be rich, but he's low class in terms of taste. And I'm not defending Trump here or his taste or his well-cooked states. Right. But like a lot of that, whether intentionally or not, created affinity towards people who feel like they're being like ostracized. Again, not yeah. defending them and making them victims. But the like... The people we saw storming the Capitol are people who are like, as, like I, I, I always the whole thing of like people accusing other people of playing the victim card irritates me. But like 
this is a moment in which these are these people like the elect. I mean, just the entire claim, like the election was stolen from us is a like I am like a I am the victim and I am standing right. up for a blah, 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 blah. They feel aggrieved, right, right or wrong. And they're wrong, but they feel aggrieved. And that's the. And that's oh, right. the so I mean, they might not even be wrong. I mean, since the 80s, Reagan, Reagan policies have like tried to diminish yes. the working class. So they are I think they're feeling that, well, but yes. they are just blaming yeah. the wrong source. Well, and Trump is well, like it's 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 a convenience thing. It's, it's the person who was on their side from their point of view is it, like to their point. Yes, of view, yes, Trump he is. is right. To zoom out from Trump a little bit, you're looking at the Republican Party. The Republican Party overwhelmingly uses rhetoric of working class, small business owners, yep. entrepreneurial yep. rhetoric, etc. Yeah, et since the 80s, they've like targeted right. black people who run welfare as a reason to cut taxes. Like these people exactly. do not deserve your tax money. We should basically as a front is- to like to help the rich get richer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And but by creating that affinity, that kind of picture of that's who they stand for, regardless of and again, distinguishing between rhetorical, re, like rhetorical presentation and reality, because mm-hmm. the reality is that an overwhelming amount of those fiscal policies contribute to the undermining of the working class in the middle have contributed to the undermining of the working class in the middle class since the 1980s. Uh, so they're using that rhetoric to basically create an affinity between people like, let's say, like the, you know, the average, quote unquote, working class America. I don't even know what that means anymore. And Donald Trump, who is an extreme one percenter. Well, it, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it means nothing. And that's sort of the thing. It's only a rhetoric that I want to bring Stefan to it. It's because I mean, like, and we can't totally speak for him. But I would I would I would guess and Steph, you, you're going to back me up. If you ask your if you ask your dad what class he was in, your dad would absolutely say he's working class. Oh, yeah. Her dad, her dad, by the way, very, very much a Democrat, very liberal, but he would he would 100% say that he was a working class person. He's a construction worker. However, right. he's a construction worker who owns his own company. Again, not, which is not, which is not to say that he's, which is not to say that he is super wealthy. He's not, he's not poor, but he's not no. wealthy either. But in, I will also in, say, like most most union construction workers in my family, make more money than most tenured professors. Right, right. And yep. he, but he's not even he's not even. A, I mean, he's not a he's not a construction worker. He sure. owns a construction. I mean, he is a construction worker. But right. but but literally from a class studies point of view, Steph's father is very much from the from a Marxist the what we study point of view. He is literally bourgeoisie. Like he owns the company. He owns the means of production. Yeah, yeah. He he employs other people. Like he is now, no one would ever think of him that way because they'd look at him and they'd say, here's a dude in a hard hat with some blue jeans on. Like no yeah. one would ever think of him as upper class. Yeah, yeah, From yeah. a class studies point of view, he 100% is. He is literally a small business owner. Mm-hmm. Like that's- well, from, from a fight, yeah. yeah, from a, from a, his position in the, in the actual economic market and from a financial sense, yes. from a cultural affinity sense. He is a, from a cultural affinity sense. Yes, he is, and again, this is not to diss on my uh, my my my. Uh, right, this is just to describe how these dynamics but, work. Yeah, but he is he is a well, he wouldn't be a hick, but he's a he's a Yinzer he's a Yinzer blue collar construction worker. That's how he is viewed by society from a social class stance. Because he also came from a very Catholic family, yeah, like Irish a tr- like a truly like religious family, mm-hmm. where he has like very like strong beliefs about not ripping people off. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of the reasons why he's wealthier is because he 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 like he's very fair, like, and that's even an understatement in like how much he charges people. But he comes from like a very religious back, but he's very like 
modest and yeah so so it becomes but but he doesn't feel like he deserves like more than like a lot of these people really give me the sense that they feel entitled to more but that's what we're saying is more of Steph's dad in the world yes we do sure but but my my point being that he is he's in a weird space because he would i mean and it it makes it hard to sort of pigeonhole him right because like he he is exactly the kind of person that is being targeted by right by trump yes because he is literally a a small business owner Mm -hmm. Um, but, but then again, like he knows how Trump cheated people like him out of money. Right. So, so he, but, so, but, but I mean, but he, ab- that's, but, like, I'm, but I'm talking about your dad in the abstract, not just yeah, your right. dad, the specific, um, uh, the specific individual, like your dad didn't fall for it. No. Sure. But, um, but like that, but it becomes a weird thing because is your dad working class? Is your dad upper class? Is he middle class? Is he like, what is he? And it depends he, on the, it depends on the, he just, yeah, I thinks about that so much as like he yeah. wants people to be to treat each other fairly right but i mean well, because these demographics are only yeah. useful in like like i mean it's like demographics are kind of like book genres they're only useful when they're useful they never capture the to- totality of what's actually going on which is why i mean this is the issue and i feel like journalists have gotten better about talking about this when we're looking at like polls for example one of the reasons why they're often not really representative of what's going on is because like the way we kind of portion out people according to these demographics is often misleading and not mm-hmm. i'm not saying like intentionally they're crafting these these like these like surveys to be misleading it's just that there's no way yeah you can't us. capture the complexity of mm-hmm. humans no. right it, especially in s- simplified statistics that are something that can be translated to the everyday public and i'm not saying there's a knock on like the everyday public it's just like these are i mean I, hates people. <laughs> I apparently. Well, it's like even even you know I'm somebody that grew up watching C-SPAN, and I think I have like I I make an effort to be fairly up on news and politics and policy. And if you gave me the nitty gritty like deep dive data that probably a lot of political scientists and potentially even journalists and government officials are working with, I would be it would it would I could get through it, but it would it would take time. I sure. mean. I think part of the complexity of, of, of news reporting, and this is, I mean, this is kind of aside from the present issue of, of what we're talking about right now, but part of the complexity of all this stuff is it's like, it is really difficult to keep track of all of this stuff on such an expert level. We rely on journalists. We rely to some degree, even on politicians to kind of translate to us this in a meaningful way. This is why we are a democratic Republic, not a direct democracy. Well, we should, I mean, we, we theoretically do, but like, in, and this is, this ties us back to Twitter, right? Do we, well, we, let me say we, when we, me, and you guys, we might rely on media to do this. I watch a lot of news, but we as a society in 2020, 2021, we rely on Twitter. I mean, like, honestly, we, we Twitter rely and Facebook. on Most Twitter Facebook. Most people now get their, get their right. news from social media, and it's That's often... True. Like, so first, you get your news from, yeah. you don't even read, people don't read articles. People, we, we talked about this on the News by Meme episode. Yeah. We rely on people giving us news in what can I fit in 240 characters or in a headline. And you can tell and when we say we statistically like significant portions of, of the population, yeah. of the American population. Right. And, probably, and, and frankly, the world population in a lot of right. ways. Um, 
like like that's how that's how information is transferred right now. So so that means that you can have misleading things. You you have a lot of who just don't read beyond the headline. They're like, oh, this says what I want it to do, so I'll reforward it, and then like you know whatever gets the most forwards, that's apparently the that's apparently the the truth at least by conjecture. So whatever. Um, or we or we use it to know you know why is it important what um, what. Donald Trump says on Twitter or Andrew or Anderson Cooper says on Twitter because no one can be bothered to listen to an entire fucking speech of his. So people want to be able to get, you know, let me just get the burst of it in, in, in one, you know, in one tweet, right? Like, like I, I will say, I think Anderson Cooper, or we, we were talking before the show, like I, I, I think Anderson Cooper apologizes for a lot of the stuff that he says wrong on his show a lot. He understands that he comes from a place of privilege. He understands that he makes mistakes, but like, Nobody. I mean, I watch a show every night, but most people don't watch a show every night. What happens is when does he when he says something provocative that gets retweeted? That's the only thing that matters, right? That's the consensus reality, mm-hmm. and so that's I think, what, I, yeah. what I think people want. People want consensus reality. Yeah, I think that boils down to two issues, though. It's like, okay, well, what is is the nature of social media and the nature of journal, like how journalism is getting paid right now? And Hannah, I know you probably know way more about the nitty gritty of this than I do. But like part of the reason the news has become increasingly clickbaity is because a lot of news outlets now are being paid like their revenue is dependent on the Internet, which is driven by ad revenue subscriptions, which like you need click through. So as much as you only rely on headlines, they need to write headlines that will entice you to click through, even if it's just to read those first three sentences which impacts, the, like I think, the form and the quality of journalism, even by publications that are doing their best to deliver quality journalism. So there's paywalls, which there was a tweet that Absolutely. went viral this week that was like, so like a reporter was like, please read our story. I think it was the Washington Post. And like, don't don't rely on like bad news sources for this. Someone was like, you know, showed the screenshot of the paywall and was like, well, guess how much it costs to like read something like Breitbart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just like another kind of maybe semi topic that I was wondering about um, is the extent to which Trumpism is due to people's like wanting just a sense of belonging in our society. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you guys talked about like different classifications like economic and uh, educational and that kind of thing, but social, racial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sort of, I guess, sort of along the lines of educational, I've heard a lot of people say things like that. They like kind of making statements about how people they feel like they've been put down by people who are on the left and people on the left have like the sense of superiority. We call it white anxiety, really, or or white male anxiety, which is kind of in, in and of itself is kind of pigeonholing in a way that's not necessarily fair because they're not all male. They're not all white. The problem is. If the left takes a monopoly on the idea of, you know, we're the left, we care about people, not like those assholes on the right. We're the ones helping everybody. We're the ones doing this. Black lives matter. Trans lives matter. You know, if you are suddenly I'm not going to mention his name. There's a guy that stuff went to high school with that is frankly an idiot. And we and would post a post to Facebook and he would constantly argue with us with, about stuff like, well, you know, it took me almost a year after college to even find a job. And I'm smart. And like, you know, it's all I lost many jobs to black people just because they were black. And he, he says stuff like this. And he doesn't understand that, you know, from his perspective, yes, the world is being that is, is put upon him because he doesn't necessarily see the struggles of other people have seen 
He just knows that people are constantly telling him he's privileged and he doesn't feel privileged. Yeah, the world is hard. Yeah, the world is hard and he doesn't feel privileged. So when he sees an affirmative action program, when he sees a welfare program and he feels like he's struggling, there is a sense that, whoa, they're not helping me because I am, you know, who's out there to help the white man? And and frankly, on our side, on the left, we do poo-poo that a lot more than maybe is fair, which is not to say that we shouldn't poo-poo it. It's well, to say that, like, that anxiety, there's there's not always a recognition of that anxiety. I, I, saw, a, mm-hmm. I saw a conversation on Facebook um, th- of people very, very absolutely upset about the woman who got shot during the Capitol raid. And I saw people arguing, and this is outrageous. They they caught this. They would have never shot a Black Lives Matter for a protester if they went into the Capitol. And these people were serious. Now, they have no idea that Black Lives Matter protesters get shot all the fucking mm-hmm. time. Yep. But from their perspective, this woman got shot because she was yeah. white. And mm-hmm. how do you like how like they're wrong? I get I mean, I get that they're wrong, but their anxiety is real. So how do you combat that? If they're if all the news they get is from Twitter, how do you combat that? So as far as the question of like finding groups and things like that, I don't I don't know if it's necessarily like we're at a period where people are more motivated to find their clan, so to speak, than at another point in history, because like that's a pretty normal human cultural impulse we see, you know, manifested in different ways throughout all of human history. What I do think is that and this is something that, again, not not recuperating this person, but like Trumpism. And Trump is really good at pushing those those buttons and that desire to, to produce in-groups and out-groups in a way that's motivated by animosity rather than inclusion. And I don't say like inclusion in terms of like, let's have the big tent, et cetera, et cetera. But like, <laughs> so for example, opposing like Obama's rhetoric and sort of like change, like life of change and like bringing people in, which was big tent rhetoric. But a lot of that was like, let's make an, it, it is about defining an in-group based on a certain set of values. You can argue that that in-group yeah, was sort of larger in the case of Obama, because that's, you know, that's how you win an election. Um, whereas Trump, it's about we're going to delineate what the in-group is by saying what it is not like what what is not us, essentially. And that's like kind of going back to the true Americans versus not Americans and kind of digging that trench even deeper. Mm-hmm. Again, look at his first speech um, right. of the campaign. I think like this is a broad generalization of American history, but you know the both parties um, have used similar rhetoric um, about law and order. Mm-hmm. They have preyed on fears of racism. Like we have our media, uh, you know, symbols that play upon racism fears throughout American history um, see Job of the Wind and I just I, I wonder if uh, this is probably like just what everybody else um, has already said in like the four years that we I just wonder if Trump is just a culmination of a, a bunch of little and big things oh, absolutely brought to the logical conclusion um, yeah people who have been like bombarded with that kind of you know fear fear crime fear you know black people essentially like resent black people are taking your money and it's just sort of like this is the logical conclusion to all of that i think that like 13th on netflix actually does a pretty good job of laying out how some of that worked in recent history uh with like tv ads and things um if anyone wants to see more of that yeah it's a great show so moving back to katia's thing though so what happens right like so um, they have removed his his Twitter access, which I I mean, 
I fundamentally believe this might kill him more so than the more so than the impeachment trial, which as this drops, I guess you might or might not have started. I don't know where things have happened in the in the 48 hours since we recorded this to when the listeners get to yeah. hear it. Con- Congress says that they will start uh, impeachment proceedings on Monday as of as of this morning. Right. That was the plan. If, so did that happen? The 25th Amendment to remove the president as unfit from office. Right. Um, is not pursued over the weekend. And Pence says he's not going to do that. Yeah, and so, a bunch yeah. of uh, cabinet members have resigned, including Betsy DeVos. Which can we just pause and uh, say good riddance? <laughs> Small mercies. I mean, I do want to get to Matt's next point, but I think just highlighting like the resignation of cabinet, like cabinet officials and like other people, and I believe there's other like lower level staff that have also resigned in yeah. some sense. You know, Wednesday because it's only been like three days. Um, <laughs> God. Like it is two weeks from Biden's inauguration. Mm-hmm. Like talk about too little, too late. Like the writing on the wall, like as we've said, as everyone has been saying, has been on not only for years, but particularly in the last several months. And like in a way that even even if you are a true believer in in some kind of MAGA thing, like has been undeniable. Sure. Like the fact that some version of this, I don't know if we necessarily anticipated this particular event or this particular like level of an event to be happening leading up to the inauguration. But I think we were all kind of collectively bracing for somebody right, like, or right. for, for something to happen. Like or at least anyone who was paying attention. Because I don't right. think I talked to anyone since Wednesday that is surprised about anything from breaching the Capitol to the pipe bombs that may be allegedly be connected that have been found around DC. Like no one is surprised. And even like journalists who are feigning surprise on mainstream cable television, that that does seem feigned to me. Like, I don't think anyone yeah. is shocked and I don't think anyone right. should be shocked. The only way and I well, feel like you can be shocked is that either you don't understand American electoral politics or national culture, or you have somehow I think people are shocked news. in that they're in shock. You know, I think people are in shock about it, but I, yes. I don't think anybody's really surprised. I think people are like in a world of how is this reality, right? Like, how yeah. is this real life? How are, you know, how did we get here? And I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I mean, that's what this show is. You know, how did we get here? Well, we're talking about how we got here. Um, you know, going back to what happened during the, the Obama versus McCain and Palin kind of point of view, but going beyond that, going back to the Clinton administration and what happened with his trial, you know, that was a big part of it. And that was that was the left, the Democrats kind of protecting. Now, I will say that what Clinton did was not as dangerous as anything that Trump's done, but that was a closing of ranks and pretending that he did not lie when everyone knew he did, right? Like that was a lynch. That was essentially him breaking the rules and the Democrats coalescing around him. And basically the Republicans at that moment, Newt Gingrich yeah. said so. The Republicans said, we're going to make you pay for this. Okay, fine. The bets are off. And since then, we've had a, div- a division in politics. But then you go back beyond Clinton and you look at like the right. Reagan era. And then we go behind the Reagan area and you look, you look at, you go in the 60s and you look at the civil rights clashes, the Kennedy, um, uh, the, the Kennedy versus Nixon, all of this, like politics have, as we have made the world more inclusive and allowed other people in, you know, we allow black people to vote. We allow women to vote. We allow black people to hold office. There was a black president for eight years. You know, we allow stuff like that to happen, which in order to spread power to other people necessarily takes power away from the concentration. And yes, so, if there's a concentration of people, you know, I have, have a question. Yeah. I have a question. So th- sort of thinking about a couple of the themes that we 
we've kind of covered in the last however you know 45 minutes whatever yeah no problem. i guess the question is is i think we, we were talking about the the the, the, the palin mccain era and all like and especially like that cultural history you just kind of like glossed over math like sure. okay this is speaking in broad generalities so i'm still thinking this through as i'm saying this i think the left and the democratic party for at least my lifetime, but I think this is true as like of the 20 and 21st century, at least in broad terms, has mm-hmm. focused on being like progressive in the sense of always looking towards the future and like what changes can be made to improve. Well, be progressive. Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, it's like it's a future orientation of like, OK, what does America look like now and what incremental improvements can be made to move towards an America that is, you know, more just, more inclusive, et cetera, et cetera. On or at least prepare hand, for it. At least prepare for it. I, 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 I'm, yes. I don't know that I'm willing to give the Democrat, the Democratic Party of America the foresight to say that they're specifically trying to move so much as they're, where's the ball going to be? Okay, let's be but ready. I think that's also, yeah. let's not say that's that the Democrats are the, like, all Democrats are the left because, like, as we've talked about in other shows, Sure. Mm-hmm. Or even like Joe Biden going on about how like America, this is not who we are. Yes, it is. Like, but I think that goes to the point where I feel like the the when we're if we're just looking at it as a binary, which again I acknowledge is like fully simpli- simplified. I think the mm-hmm. left has done this thing of like even in the, the Biden like this is not who we are. The left has focused on a certain kind of pr- like progressive, small p progressive aspirational vision of what America is. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think, like, for better or worse, the right in the Republican Party, and I think we saw a lot of this in motion on Wednesday, I think has has done a much better job of crafting a mythological narrative of America. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the things I've been thinking about Australian is... Nation on a hill. It's Reagan's thing. The, the America's exactly. Australian nation on a hill. It, 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 and I wonder, and this is where the question comes in, is I feel like... Like the left, and even I would include that, like the moderates at this point, because right now we're dealing with a fairly right wing situation. The Democratic moderates. Right. Like we've kind of seeded the rhetoric of early America and like the revolution and like for good and in many cases for good reasons, because it's like, okay, we're distancing ourselves from slavery. We're distancing ourselves from the disenfranchisement of women, people of color, et cetera, et cetera. Like those things like that, that distance and that historical awareness is necessary. At the same time, however, I do think that there's something important that has been lost in or like potentially has been lost in completely seeding the rhetoric of things like Thomas Paine, George Washington mm-hmm. in this mythological narrative of who Amer- what America is, because right. I think that there's many people, particularly as you get closer, like like more, more and more left on the spectrum. And I would include myself in this have difficulty identifying with various historical periods in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think for people for whom their identity as like Americans of the United States of America, (laughs) for whom like that history is deeply meaningful. I feel like basically there's a rhetorical ground that has been seeded, but I don't know if it was a good idea to seed it. Entirely, we didn't. See what we, what we, when we seeded it, I feel like it wasn't replaced with anything meaningful. Um, perhaps we could say like, and there was no, there's not right. been a serious effort. And you know, I feel on the part of just a large majority of Americans uh, to reckon with our history um, and mm-hmm. about why we might have done that. Also, I this I think goes back to like. 1776 commission and like mm-hmm. is taught in schools and how things are taught it's 
Yeah, patriotism is dangerous, and uh, Ben Dick Anderson would say that nationalism is a hell of a drug. Well, he would be mad at me for putting him in such a way, but that, that's basically like his his like book, Imagine Communities. It's like nationalism is a hell yeah. of a drug. It's the mm-hmm. thing that makes you want to bite and die and love your country and see people, and it's imagined through the things we read, our newspapers, mm-hmm. our novels, our cultural like rituals. Um, on and on, and and it leads to jingoism. I think that's right, though. Hannah is like the idea that like we've and I okay again a royal we that at this point <laughs> is very non-specific, but uh, like in doing yeah we we haven't done I feel like the historical work for the for a broader base of people to really have the understanding of like what it means to understand American history and like all particularly all of the really awful parts mm-hmm. and move on from that because i think that's why we see a lot of divisions that we see and we ha- and we have been seeing for the last decade or so is because like i mean i'm thinking to my personal experience like i know a lot of people in my extended family for whom like there there is a particular mythology of america as the greatest country on earth that if that was taken away from them or if they felt like that was taken away from them i, I don't know if i would go so far as to say destroy their personal identity their cultural identity, though. I mean, it is a, it is a, yeah. Right? And so I think like, it's based on exceptionalism. Yes. I mean, I don't believe that, right? When you say, right. Hannah said, you, you said that we remove that the small C conservatism, the, you know, where, where, you know, the mom and apple pie, the, you know, if, if we remove that exceptionalist version of a vision of America <laughs> and replace it with nothing, it makes me happy. Because I don't. But you understand the historic. But you understand the historical context for why it's necessary. I think what what Hannah and I are saying is that I don't know that for the majority of people that historical consciousness exists. And you're absolutely correct because making me like if you're trying if you're trying to form a coalition of like minded people to run a nation, targeting Christopher Maverick is the worst thing that you can do because I'm not normal right i'm a weirdo who thinks about this this sort of stuff and has extremely frankly fringe viewpoints that are you know very very far left so like i'm not the average person and i don't mean that in an an exceptional person kind of way far from it i mean that like like you're not going to build a big tent if you put me at the center of it like that's right. that's a bad you're not, idea. You're not the national median, essentially. Right. So, like, so what you want? I mean, if you're going to build a party around, and I'm going to, you know, to bash the left a little bit, performative wokeness, which is something that you know makes us happy. If you're going to say, if you're going to see say, 2020 cabinet elections, right? And if you're going to say, or even stuff like, if you're going to say, you know, we need to reconcile this slavery issue that has that the nation's been dealing with for the last 400 years, which is what the 1619 project does. You know, this doesn't. You know, what's the upside of this for someone who hasn't really cared about it, but, you know, just wants to believe that America's great? You're asking them to acknowledge, well, no, America is shitty and just deal with it. There's no bonus there. Can I jump in here? I was thinking that I wonder if like conservatives and right wing people are just more likely to like internalize what America is and really think of themselves as America and therefore can't like think of anything negative related to America because they take that like as a personal affront to them. You mean America specifically or do you mean you, I, I think everybody internalizes like that. I just think that I think it's a different thing. Yeah. It's a different story to spin. Yeah. yeah. I'm hesitant to say that like culture. I, I don't though. What do you mean? I don't feel I don't I don't really think of myself as like 
as a, <laughs> I've never really thought of myself as America. Um, oh, no, American yeah. hasn't really been like a right. core aspect of my identity. I think everybody, I think everybody internalizes their identity. I think that there's a, I think there's a generic ideal of America there making part of their identity in a way. Be- that you, because maybe because yeah. they, yeah, it's the reverse causality <laughs> because be they think of US. only positive things. They've been only fed that in history class and whatnot. And they be, that becomes their identity as an American and so forth. They're yeah. more resistant to like that. negative aspects. Yeah. I don't know if it's so much that it's like it's a certain group is more prone to like internalizing like stories as part of their identity. It's just like I think we're internalizing very different stories. Yes. Yeah. I think I think, I think that's why think it's uh, something like um, this is not who we are rings hollow to a lot of people for different reasons. Like it rings hollow to someone like me because I'm like uh, look at history and look at like right. how this government treat Native Americans, how it supports slavery, et cetera, et cetera. But if so, but someone on the right is like, actually, no, this is who we are because I identify with American history, which is tied to white nationalism for the very reasons a lot of people don't want to be associated with that kind of nationalism. And then you end um, up with this big middle of people who are like, no, I don't see it this way on, on, on either side. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I just, it, the, I, I feel like um, I, I saw this and I probably have said this on another episode because it just really spoke to me. I was on Twitter. Um, which is a dangerous way to begin a story. Um, but someone tweeted like someone tweeted like 2020. What if 2020 isn't just like an anomaly of things that happen? It's just the consequences of like long arcs of history, like coming to roost, whether that be about Trump or like the pandemic or how we're dealing with change or like capitalism. And I'm like, yes, actually, this makes a lot of sense. So I, I mm-hmm. feel like I mean, this is what history is like yeah. ma- major events don't come out of nowhere. Like, I think that's right. So we're I, I mean, we're sitting. I, I wonder at the wisdom of how this episode will feel in like two days, much less two months, much less two years. But like, you know, we're sitting in the middle of history. Um, so I don't know how it will like seem once we like get all the facts about what exactly all has happened. Probably 90% um, of this will be. Yeah. But, but at the same, <laughs> at the same time, like, since, I mean, there, there is a reason none of us were surprised to turn on our TVs and see what we were seeing. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, and, and I'm not right. going to be surprised if things get worse. Or, which I Yay. guess is the thing is like I hate the sentence like well where do we go from here but also like what like I don't I, I like I don't know I, I can't speculate like what the consequences necessarily are. I mean I can but uh, at least I can speculate about the consequences of Twitter being the social media technology human um, as we all are as cultural nerds but like I don't I can't speculate what exactly is going to happen in terms of broad strokes, I do wonder, I think the thing I keep going back to is this question of like, that I keep, that I keep seeing on social media is like, how do we individually respond to this? And I keep seeing, again, broad generalization, like the camps I see are just basically continue as normal because somehow the inauguration is going to magically fix everything, which I think is, that's like the only position I I personally can know at this point. I'm like, I, I can't agree with that because I don't no, think that, that, he's not that makes that. sense. Even I mean, it's, it's not going weird. away, and yeah. and Biden is not a silver bullet. Like, and yeah. and also like these issues are not just attached to Trump. Even if somehow magically Trump disappeared into the clouds and just was no longer to influence on people's minds, right. which is we not going to happen. We call and it Trumpism, but that's a misnomer. The other two responses I keep seeing is either well, like okay, is 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 like we have to somehow reach out to like people that can be reached. Like we're probably not going to reach the QAnon like those people because holy crap, <laughs> but like, 
identifying who we can reach that like among the Trump base and reach out to them and like bring them into the fold. And then, but I, I'm like, I'm sympathetic to that. Cause I'm like, I don't, you know, I'm someone who is uncomfortable writing off human beings as unchangeable. But on the other hand, everyone's like, no, they had their chance. Like, yeah, let's like, like, like basically like screw them. We're, we're going forward and they, they can just leave. And I'm like, I honestly, at this point, I have great sympathies for both of those approaches. I don't know what's appropriate at this point. I literally have no idea. This is again, this is us being cultural theorists, right? Like cultural studies is my religion and has been for quite a while, right? Mm-hmm. Because, like I sit here and I, you know, you know, we, we joke about the that one review we got that got that was like, you know, such a quirky little Marxist show. And I was like, yes, yes, we are, because that's like it's the one thing that I've been able to attach and believe in. Like I the reason nothing surprises me, the reason the reason I predicted a Trump win like a year before, you know, like when he first announced, I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to be the next president. And everybody, and, and people, I lost friends because people were like, stop saying that. That's not funny. And I'm like, I'm not joking. He's going to win. Like, I'm like trying to sound the alarm because I, you know, I sit here and I watch cultural trends and I and, uh, and I and I break apart, apart stories and I use theory and I go, oh, my God, he's got to win because this is what this is just how it's going. And I don't have tea leaves for this. I can I can understand how an impeachment works. I understand how the fall of a dynasty works. I understand, you know, these are things that I have, but we're in weirdly uncharted territory here. You know, no one's ever been impeached twice. Is he going to be? I don't know. No one's, you know, and moreover, the removal of his Twitter, that's a big deal. Like that fundamentally changes the game on him with 12 days left in his presidency. Holy shit. You know, like, like how do you even know? I don't know anything. I don't have a map for that. Yeah, because even even when I'm like some of the historical precedents people have been raising from U.S. history about that are specifically sort of like fringe groups that decide they're going to do some kind of armed militia-esque riot insurrection through history. Like, even though I think there's lessons to be taken from there, I mean, again, the storming of the Capitol is is a thing that hasn't happened in over 100 years. Um, 200. 200. Yeah, thank you. 200, yeah. Over 200, 200 years. Yeah. Oh, so, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, on top of that, it's also like... Day. Oh, you know? yeah. But also, like, all of this is happening as, as, you know, both Mav and Hannah have noted, like, in a media landscape that no other comparable moment in American history has really taken place in. And I think if there's anything the last, not just the last four years, but I think the last like several decades have demonstrated is like the importance that media narratives, I mean, we as cultural theorists always know this, but I think like even to an even greater extent, like political reality is being determined by media narratives. And I, when I think about it, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. We just, we started having the conversation about alternative facts because of the Trump presidency. And we have seen for the last four years, I mean, I wrote a dissertation about this, like the way that like these stories don't need to be based in fact to be functionally real to people. You can act. And this is why I go back constantly to like the importance of ceremony and the importance of mythology, because the way we interpret our everyday lives is dependent on the stories we're telling ourselves all the time about who we are or who we want to be. Those stories don't have to be based in facts. And when they're not, at least tangentially, we I, I think I mean, this is where we end up when those stories are not at least attentive to reality, are not being questioned or their veracity. We're not skeptical about basically our own views. 
this is this this is the kind of situation we get. It's not just idle like, oh, I disagree with my uncle at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Although, you know, I think that a lot of us have had that kind of situation or like have seen like little things and people might wondered, oh, why is it a big deal that like Mississippi had a Confederate flag as a state flag until literally right. like officially year? Um yeah. why do they think things matter? And little things do build on each other until there's a tipping point and we just experienced the mother of all tipping points. Yeah, it's like 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 what you're talking about in Mississippi or like or you know, the weird ass uncle at your Thanksgiving, like those are pieces of a much larger picture. Like those things are never isolated. We talk about this show all the time. Culture doesn't happen in a vacuum. And it's not just a bunch of little things happening independently. Like this is a network of stuff all talking to each other, all influencing each other, all pulling on each other. And when it gets out of hand and it's allowed to escalate without other people pushing back to some kind of mean, we get we, we get the, the ransacking of the capital. So we've resolved nothing. <laughs> I mean, it, it's impossible to resolve anything because I think I think we have resolved. I mean, it, like not necessarily this episode, but on this show, is it's like culture matters. It's true. Like is- this happened because of culture. This happened because of media, and because, in large part, of people not paying attention. Mm-hmm. It's people not paying attention to their own media consumption, and I think we're all guilty of this. I mean, we talk we've we've talked more. I think in the last four years about that, like the way that we end up in our own media bubbles and we're constantly fed confirmation bias. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and, and people not thinking critically. Is yeah. Exactly. And it's like, I mean, there are other factors that are economic and all the, like all these other things, but it's like, when I, when I keep going back to this, it's like this happened in large part because cultural narratives went absolutely haywire. Mm-hmm. Right. And from a psychological perspective, you can't really blame people because people just tend to think associatively so that they're they're bombarded, like you guys have been saying, with cultural information about like America's great and, you know, everything that they've heard all their lives. And so it's much harder in that situation to step back and think, oh, maybe maybe I'm wrong about something. Well, well because how hard is it to remap your entire brain? You know, yeah, exactly. Brain. You're fighting. Yeah, your natural processes well because once it becomes something that you believe to be reality it's like, really hard to dispute yeah <laughs> absolutely and we i mean we see that not just with media like but digital media in this moment we see that throughout human history i mean that's like as you're as you're saying stuff like that that's how brains work mm-hmm. so we haven't resolved anything but we no. have at least established something <laughs> i edit these episodes a lot i don't know how long this episode ended up being after i i truncated it you know for us in real time, we talked for two hours just now. I don't think I'm going to release a two-hour episode, so help me get shit. But, 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 but like you know, there's just over the last hour and a half, let's say, of we, you know, of everything that we've been going through. Jeez, I mean, this is so weird because this is so rapidly evolving that you know it's Saturday. This might be all dead and out of. This might make no on Monday because things are you know culture is moving so rapidly right now that I don't even know for sure that as this drops, Donald Trump is the president. Like, I don't, I I cannot fundamentally say that for sure, which is a very weird thing to, it's a very weird moment to be able to say that, like, I cannot without a doubt say who the, you know, who the leader of this country is going to be. And I don't say that, you know, that's not even wishful thinking where it might normally be, oh God, I wish Donald Trump was a president. It's that I cannot 100% say he will be. 
I actually think he will be because I don't think that they're going to be able to remove him before he's out. Like I, 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 you know, but I am for the very first time actually very worried of will he actually leave the White House? Yes, he will. Right. I don't know if there's been another attack on the country or not. And, and it's like just because we're talking about literally 48 hours from now, less than the status quo could have been completely blown up. And, you know, or maybe it's not. Maybe everything that we're saying is still relevant. But, like, the world was a very different place on Wednesday for us. So, like, that's, that's, the, that's the speed we're moving at right now. And then, you know, the day before, you know, we started this, this timeline. The reason we went through the timeline was because the changes were happening so quickly this yeah. week. And it's, it's just weird. And, you know, world, the world moved at, at a breakneck Twitter speed for for a week there. And now he's gone from Twitter. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Speaking of rapidly changing realities. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Such a vacuum. Well, you know what? Normally, I know usually when I like I always go with the guest and I say, and you want to plug and, and Steph always says no. But, you know, Stephanie, unlike some people on this planet, you have a Twitter account. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess I do. I use it for only one specific purpose, and that's to complain about our local um, Haikyuu show. Uh, yes, the questions yes, are terrible. Yeah, Steph uses Twitter to literally argue <laughs> with a with a local game show for high school students. But, but so no, you, it's the the host. Just well, the host. No, but I mean, you get you argue at a show. For the yeah, right, right, right. right. But um, but like, but you have a Twitter account. Yeah. So you know. Um, some people yeah. are so lucky. Some people aren't allowed to have Twitter accounts. So, you That's know. true. I feel privileged. <laughs> so, uh, Steph, I'm surprised you, they haven't banned me. So Steph, anybody, anything you want to plug? Um, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't think people be interested in my my Twitter twitterings. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Katya, what about you? Ah, uh, well, if you really want, to, you can find my Instagram at just that nerd kid. But honestly, if you're going to spend some time on the internet this week, I would encourage you to one look at pictures of adorable puppies, and then uh -huh. after you've sufficiently done some brain bleach, uh, call your representatives, donate <laughs> some money if you're able to a political organization, volunteer your time. This is going to be another very long year. Yeah. And I think it only gets better if we actually do something about it, which seems like an obvious statement, but it's what I don't feel like we always follow through on. And I'm definitely guilty of that. So that's my plug. And Paladro Hannah. You know what? You can just just keep putting that um, Feed America Food Bank information oh. back in the show notes um, yeah. because the pandemic still rages on and uh, $600 aren't going to cut it. So mm -hmm. um, I know like there's more immediate things, but Democrats said $2,000 checks if they got the majority. So we should hold them to that. Yeah. And it's not nearly enough. So. Yeah. Wow. In a better world, talking about $600 versus $2,000 checks could be a whole show. And we didn't even mention that because, like, wow, this has been a week. Um, so, so, like, people still need pandemic aid. So, again, while you're talking to your representatives, find them about that as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, I sound like the bastard. because I'm actually going to plug my stuff. I, I don't have anything altruistic. I just, you know, I, I, I need the attention so that I can be the next, you know, apparently world leader. Um, I don't know. Follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all the places, always at Chris Maverick. 
Um, traditionally, I, I'm usually making fun of Donald Trump, but I can't do that anymore because he doesn't have Twitter. So I don't know what I I don't know what I'm tweeting about now because I don't have anything to respond to. Mav may actually have to tweet something wholesome. Yeah, no, I mean that's not going to happen. Um, no, a lot of stuff's about um about my research and everything as well, and sometimes I just make jokes. So um, you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog on www.voxpopcast.com where we talk about, well, not what we're going to be talking about next week. Next week, I believe we've already recorded the show. Hopefully, unless the world blows up even further, uh, next week will be our box office draft show, which is always very fun. Um, but we have some really cool ideas coming up, things that we're going to be talking about on the show, and we'd love your feedback. So if you go to the blog, you can talk to us about Pandemic TV or about sex and superhero comic books. You know, we've got some really interesting shows coming up and we'd love your feedback. So please, please check that out. And if you enjoy the show, we certainly hope you do. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from, including YouTube. We need more subscribers on our new YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is fun. It's, you can listen to the show and sometimes, well, probably not this episode, but we have videos and images that sort of go around go along with whatever we we're talking about for an enhanced version so like and subscribe to us on youtube because that helps and leave us a five-star review on itunes that really helps especially if it's not just a rating if you write a review talk about something about the show tell us what you like tell us what you want to hear more of tell us we're a quirky little mark of the show but you know hopefully we can make the world just a little better for you as we try to figure out ourselves. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. You're welcome as always. Thank you again. I'd like to thank you and all for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.